Uh, in a media sense, it will be very interesting. The Athletic is the biggest change in football writing in this country since the beginning of the internet and the industry got the beginning of the internet completely wrong. It didn't realise its power, it didn't realise it should charge for online product as well as print product and in doing so it created a model that had to rely on advertisers that has come close to signing its own death warrant. The hope is that there is still enough people out there to pay for content. Hello and welcome to another edition of This Football Life. I'm your host, Josh Schneiderweiler, and on this show, I speak with players, coaches, scouts, agents, and more to give you a behind-the-scenes look at football. Today, we're joined by award-winning writer and broadcaster, Daniel Story. If you're not already familiar with Daniel and his work, you can read him regularly on Football 365, The iPaper, The Irish Examiner, and Optus Australia. When he's not writing, which is quite rare because, as you can tell, he contributes to a lot of different outlets, he is talking about football on podcasts such as The Totally Football Show, which he appears on every Monday. And in this episode, we'll dive into his football adventure to Africa and Eastern Europe, his approach to writing articles and columns, his views on the football media in 2019, and specifically The Athletic, and lots more. You can follow him on Twitter, and I highly recommend you do. His Twitter handle is at DanielStory85. And before we get to this episode, I'd like to give a special shout out to a couple listeners, JDub380 and Danny Fersh, for the positive reviews that you guys wrote on iTunes last week. I highly encourage everyone listening to do the same if you haven't already. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with writer Daniel Story. Uh, I'm here in King's Place with Daniel Story. Daniel, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. It's such a pleasure uh, to be here with you. I'm a, a huge fan of your writing, uh, so thank you for agreeing to do this. Not at all. Um, you had a great tweet <laughs> yesterday um, where you were talking about how you were on Soccer Way, and is, does anyone else uh, do that uh, late on a Sunday night? Um, so I was curious what is your weekend like how how do you uh consume football and um you know what what are you doing on the weekend generally i mean i mean it depends where i'm sent by vi newspaper who i do matches for whether i'm sent on a saturday or a sunday so this weekend was was chelsea leicester which was sunday afternoon next weekend is liverpool arsenal which is 5 30 on a saturday so that's slightly dependent on that but Generally, I, I'm going to a game to do a match piece from there. Uh, and then on the Sunday, I also do a column, a kind of weekend review column for the Irish Examiner, which is an Irish newspaper. So kind of 900 words on that. Uh, I also do a column for Optus Sport, which is an Australian broadcaster. So I need to get an idea to them for the time difference for them to agree to that first thing Monday morning, to write that on Monday. And then Sunday, I also have to plan winners and losers for Football 365, which is meant we was always done for Monday lunchtime, but I do totally football show nearly every Monday. So I kind of have to get it done by by 10 a.m. And that's that's like a 3,000 worder. So Sunday, my, my week is very much front loaded towards Sunday, Monday. And, and so like, are you just watching football games like like from the time you wake up in the morning to like till till you go to sleep or no no I'm not um, I will watch 
probably two of the three live games that are on TV and I will go to a game. Uh, so that covers three. I'll watch Match of the Day, which gives you some highlights. I'll watch an edited version or a cut-down version of Goals on Sunday on Sky Sports, which uh, gives you other insight. And I'll read match reports on The Guardian, ESPN, The Times, The Athletic now. Uh, not to necessarily give me ideas, but just make sure I've got all bases covered. Because I think with columns like Winners and Losers, particularly... Fans read that because they want to read about their team and they don't want to read ill-informed words about their team. They don't want to read half-baked opinions, really. They want to know insight and they want to know a reflect. They want to see a reflection of what they think. So you have to get on top of that, otherwise there's no point starting it. There's no point doing 3,000 words of, of half-baked opinion because it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that's what you're doing. Uh, so I do have a very patient partner who is prepared and understands that I do have to watch quite a lot of football and read about quite a lot of football and spend quite a lot of time on my phone. Um, and, yeah, the the new season soon comes around quickly for her, I'm sure, <laughs> because they are busy. They are busy. Yeah, and so it sounds like you have more of your kind of time with your partner, like, later on in the week and that, like, those are your, that's your weekend is, like, maybe, like, a Wednesday or Thursday or something. Yeah, I mean, she, she works at... A regular office job you know yeah. a nine to five or an eight to four job uh, and I don't but as I said I'm very busy on a Sunday Monday Tuesday I'm still pretty busy on a Wednesday Thursday uh, I like to try and keep Fridays as quiet as possible partly to try and give myself some downtime partly because if something then if a piece comes up ad hoc that is requested of me rather than me pitching then Generally, it will be a preview-style piece that they want for a Friday lunchtime later, so it's a good time to have some spare space. But yeah, I do. I, I pride myself on working very hard. I think I hope that that's one of the things I'm known for, and I think that probably stems out the fact that I don't have a journalism qualification and I'm kind of constantly living in fear that someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, go and get a proper job, you've been found out, which probably says more about me than them, but is very much the case. Do you think that uh, you have an advantage a little bit that you don't have a journalism background that you maybe have, you know, haven't had some of the things, you know, uh, beaten out of you that like maybe. you can come fresh or something? Yeah, maybe I think you can probably look at it both ways. I think if there's a flaw to my writing, it is that I, I, I probably need an editor. I had Sarah Winterburn at Football 365 quite a long time and she is um, direct on cutting out waffle and overwriting in my work which I think if I'm I have to work very hard to cut out if I don't have a if I work for an outlet where there is much less of an editorial process so I think doing a journalism degree probably helps you in that regard and I think I probably also suffer from for contacts both in the game but particularly in the industry um, I think anything I achieve probably has to be achieved because of what the work is rather than who I know uh, and I haven't got, a, you know, there's no shortcut to that. There's no quick route to that. I came in fresh-faced and um, completely unknown, basically, to the industry. So, and unknown to editors. And I think, to an extent, that's probably still the case. I think the writers might have heard of me, but I don't think all editors have. Well, let's talk about that journey a little bit. You know, how, how did you get into the, you know, the football industry, if you will? I went, I've always loved football. I had a season to get when I was five. Uh, I'd always consumed football via all bases, playing, watching, 
reading about encyclopedic reading his, reading about the history even at a young age so I, I always loved it but never really considered it as an option uh, I went to university to study law and accounting at Manchester which I did because I didn't really know what else to do and it was a good degree and I got good grades so it was a good thing to do but I pretty quickly decided I didn't really want to follow either pursuit uh, and I was just living with friends and working in an office job in a sales job Having come back from doing some travelling, I went, I went travelling for seven months in Africa and Eastern Europe watching football. And if I'd have realised, I should have made something of that. You know, I should have blogged or I should have tried to make some connections, but I just did it because I wanted to do it. And when I got back, one of the friends I was living with said, you should actually, you know, why don't you try and start your own blog, which I did. And through there, got a very small freelance thing with a website called Off The Post, which was just kind of, it was like a who ate all the pie style of of offbeat content and I was paid three pounds a post and I did I think eight a week. So I mean it was very much nothing. <laughs> three um, pounds a post. Yeah. Wow. It's like and buying you a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean that's what it was and I was very grateful for it. And one of the problems with the industry is that there's a huge queue of behind every single person that would be willing to probably willing to do the work for less if they could. So that was my start and then I knew Nick Miller personally, who was working at Football 365 and managed to get a, a week's work experience there. And for, well, I say, you know, fortunately, they were, they were impressed with my work over that week and they let me write things as well as just make the tea. Uh, and when a space came up there, they allowed me to do a freelance column and it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, I want to talk about this seven-month, uh, you know, traveling yeah. trip you took to Africa and Eastern Europe. So, like, where were, you, like, where in Eastern Europe and Africa, and so like, what, like, what were you watching? Like, you know, the plan was to was to well, the plan was to to fly to South Africa in two thousand nine. To and it sounds ludicrous now because I I wasn't doing this for any work. I wasn't. No one was reading it. I wasn't writing anything. But I went, basically went out to South Africa to see see how they were getting on a year ahead of the World Cup, how their preparations were going. Which I say is a stupid thing because I was going to, you know, I was contacting stadiums and I was going and looking around stadiums by myself and they must just thought like, who is this guy? <laughs> um, and I also followed the, there was an Australia, South Africa test cricket series around. So I went to South Africa to do that and took in quite a lot of um, South African Premier League football. Uh, so, which was very much a, that's a very black sport in South Africa, uh, which surprised me. I had no concept. I went in very, very much with eyes closed. Uh, I had my eyes open, but in a really, really good way. The plan was then to fly to Egypt and do quite a lot of football in Egypt, but the political situation was as such that that got changed, sadly. So I had to fly straight to Greece and then worked my way up from Greece to Poland via about 10 or 11 countries taking in two or three games in in each country. Uh, so just turning up for a few days and asking where games were. It was a very odd stage in that the internet was very much alive and well, but there was, there was next to no information about... I'm sure ground hopping was a thing, but I could find next to no information about where games would be. So it was just potluck. Uh, and where I couldn't find games, I was just incredibly nerdy, just going to... finding grounds on a map, going to them taking photos of them and coming back to the youth hostel, which is, <laughs> yeah, not a glamorous thing. But yeah, I spent, as I say, probably it was just over six months doing that, but it was great. Did it change your the way you look at the game? I think it probably give, 
gave me a a more rounded view of football as a world sport. Yes, I mean I I was I was not completely naive in that I was 21 years old, so I wasn't you know I wasn't a, I wasn't completely fresh faced, but I hadn't experienced that much football outside of of the UK and I'd, you know, I'd had a season ticket at Nottingham Forest and I'd gone home and away with Nottingham Forest but that is a very small world view so uh, the rest I took in through European Championships and World Cups and I hadn't been to any major tournament or anything so yes it, it definitely changed my view and it, it, it certainly with probably without me knowing but kind of our osmosis it, it gave me a sense I would love to experience football in some way as as a career so that like you know kind of inspired you a little bit to say like oh let me make football my kind of my life um yeah i mean to to some extent i was working a sales job and football really already was my life i wasn't the job i did was you know i did a good job and i knew the 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 people that ran the company so i I wasn't letting anyone down but it was very much a a leave it at work job whereas as soon as i came away it was football was all consuming and always has been as i say I first started collecting, for example, collecting football books when I was just left university, and I've now got a kind of library of over eight, nine hundred sports books. So that was always something that was a way. It felt in a very small way that I was involved in the game, even though it was only as a as a punter rather than a professional. But yeah, any way in, I would have snapped up. And yet the reality is that it was a mate telling me, "Why don't you do this?" That even brought it to me as a concept. I had no real concept of blogging at that point. I didn't know what it was. Uh, I had no idea that I'd ever do it. And I was very lucky. I think I was probably at the very last end of of people that could get into the industry through blogging rather than the pro- immediately professional route. I think it's, pr- except in some very exceptional circumstances, I think that route is probably pretty much closed now. Yeah, it's kind of died um, mm-hmm. a bit. Wait, but now, now that I'm just thinking about it, you know, you famously mapped 1022 mm. clubs in Britain mm. um, and you know put it on Twitter and you know I was just looking at it uh, you know yesterday to prepare for this and so it just kind of occurred to me that's kind of what you were doing yeah uh, from on that trip uh, for yeah, six months. I, I, I mean without getting too Freudian and philosophical mm. about it I you know I was an only child uh, until the age of 13 when my mum met someone and I acquired stepbrothers so that's what I did you know I I didn't play computer games really I loved the oldest versions of championship manager but I basically read football magazines and read football books so um, the internet creates this infinite opportunity to keep yourself interested and avoid boredom at all costs so whether it's doing football quizzes on Sporkle or researching (laughs) football stats or mapping clubs on a map I find it genuinely therapeutic I find it a really good way to relax it's probably not what your doctor would tell you as a way of relax they'd probably say do some exercise but yeah I do enjoy it Uh, and it's a way of escape and if it's a way of escape that I can also in a very half cynical way monopolize then all power really yeah I mean it's funny I haven't heard the word sporkle in like <laughs> oh my god years uh, I used to be obsessed with that yeah that I still site. kind of am yeah is it still going yeah it's still going yeah you have to be a little bit careful about the quality but yeah but even things like that I, I, I all I've said before to people so much of football is consumed 
not pe- not potently but latently i.e via osmosis so that you don't realize it's gone in you know you can do a sparkle quiz and then someone will ask you something and you've got the answer on the tip of your tongue and you don't really know where you've heard of it and i think that happens more when you love something because if you love something then your brain inevitably opens itself up to be a sponge for information and things like quizzes and reading little articles it does stick with you and it, it it inevitably shapes you as a writer i think so you know you you start um at football 365 under sarah winterburn mm-hmm. uh, who's you know been editing uh you know football 365 for like well more than a decade like 15 16 years yeah. plus um you know what were some of the like the early lessons that you got um from her or even with uh, nick miller i am in terms of writing when I first started at 365, Sarah would joke with me because I would be write, about to write a match piece. And there was only three of us on Football 365. It's a website that, that does incredibly well for traffic based on the number of people that work there. There are still only three people there. There have never been more than three people working there full time. Um, so we had to eke out what we could. And one of the ways we was doing that was watching TV games and writing match pieces. And I used to go into it with a sense of what I wanted to write about. Uh, and she would laugh at me and say, like, that's not how it works. You have to react to it. And I, I couldn't get into my head the idea of being able to write that quickly about things that were taking place at that moment. And I was very fortunate in that Football 365 is web only, so it didn't have print deadlines. I didn't have, if I took 45 minutes after full time to finish a piece, there was no issue with that. But obviously you try and get it as near as full time as you can because you have designs eventually on breaking into that world. Uh, but more importantly than that, on a personal level, it, it gives you a thick skin um, because the comment section on websites are brutal. Feedback on social media is brutal. And you quickly learn your mistake. Well, you're told your mistakes quicker than you can learn them yourself. So that, that environment is sink or swim. I'm not a particularly good person at... Um, existing weirdly not a very good person existing by myself for a for an only child freelancer i'm quite needy i like feedback and obviously i like for positive feedback and i don't it's not that i deal badly with with negative feedback i don't react or anything but it kind of gnaws away at me a little bit and working for someone like football 365 irons that out of you pretty damn quick because if it doesn't then you as i say it's sink or swim did you have any like really low points when like you know people were like attacking you and your work? I think I think in general with with football three six five I don't know if it's changed now because I don't work there anymore full time but I think there was a sense and I understand why but I think there was a sense that it was uh, it sat very much on the outside of of the media it was very non mainstream it started out as a as a little independent website but the reality is is to make money you have to be all things to all people and you have to do the mainstream stuff as well as them or people don't read it. People have got so much they can read now that they don't need to read bad copy. Uh, and at that, okay, for a while and still now, I feel that I could work for, I could produce my best work for a year and it wouldn't necessarily make any difference to my career prospects. Now I do well enough and I'm very happy, but that for a while kind of gnawed away at me. I did, I half resented the idea that uh, there wasn't an obvious in any other industry I think there's a pretty obvious conveyor belt and I think it's a conveyor belt that the industry and that companies themselves boast about they say if you work hard in job A you'll get 
job B. And if you work in job B, you could be in my shoes in 10 years. That doesn't necessarily work in football media. And I think it works even less if you start at somewhere like Football 365, potentially. Uh, that might be completely wrong. That's just how I saw it. And that did gnaw away at me for a little bit. Um, but you have to find a way to, to flourish in that environment and deal with it. Because the reality is, is I was given an incredible opportunity to write pretty much what I wanted, pretty much what every, any day I wanted. And that taught me that, uh, that taught me to write lots of pieces quickly and I hope at a decent quality because, uh, as I say, the feedback is immediate. It sounds like, based on what you're saying, that you didn't feel like you know, the football media was kind of a meritocracy. Um, is, is that yeah, what you're getting at? Uh, uh, I'd be slightly careful. I think there are, I think in general, there are the best writers have good positions now. There's exceptions in any industry, and I'm sure there is in football writing. But there are, the people I look up to, put it this way, most of the people I look up to are in positions that I would love to have. Uh, and they are there because they are damn good writers or they're damn good contacts people or they are uh, able to react to a story very well or they are able to engage with supporters better than anyone else. And I think that largely remains. Uh, I just think it's probably a slower process from naught to 60 in football media than it is in any other or in many others. That's, that's largely because of the sheer competition, the sheer people that would love to do it. As yeah. I say, there is a queue of people behind everyone who would probably do your job for less money than you would do it if they could. So you, it's very hard in that environment, I think, to to have a meritocracy. Yeah, I mean, the supply will always outweigh... Absolutely, um, 100%. You know, and, and, and fans and supporters now are more knowledgeable and are more prepared to educate themselves on things than they ever have been. They're not just content to read 700 words and take their opinion from that. They'll do far more than that in the age of social media and the internet. And you can't, as I say, you can't get away with doing things half-assed anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned some of the writers that you look up to, but you didn't mention them by name. So let's give some, some praise to them. Who are the people you I look kind up of, to? The way I look at it is I kind of pick a a desert island stable of writers. So I'd say if I was going to pick a dream team lineup, I'd say, right, I'd have, I'd need a regionals guy to tell regional stories. So I'd pick George Colkin at the Times, just gone to the Athletic. Yeah, so you just uh, put a tweet out about yeah, him. Yeah, exactly that. So I'd say, right, I need a guy for uh, to write match reaction on the biggest game. So I'd say, well, Jonathan Liu tells a story like that, like nobody else does. Uh, I'd need a contacts man for transfers and John Percy at the Daily Telegraph is better than anyone. That's kind of how I look at it. Uh, I look at it as a fantasy stable of writers. And the depth, the depth in the industry is phenomenal. You know, you've got um, a newspaper like, or a website now like The Independent that had a stable of, of Jonathan Liu and Jack Pitbrook and Simon Hughes and Miguel Delaney and Mark Critchley and others too. And they have lost a couple to various outlets this summer, but they remain strong. And they also have now the opportunity, which is the really exciting thing, I think, to say, well, where's our next generation coming from? Who do we ne think is, are the next best, next cabs on the rank? That is incredibly, incredibly exciting, I think, as a football writer, because the hope is that that does enable a bit of meritocracy. It does enable the cream to rise to the top and it keeps things fresh. Uh, we are, it's a, an industry where I always say to, when I'm knackered and my partner says, like, 
you know, you're tired, whatever. And I say, yeah, but it's, we're not going down the mines here. This is writing about a thing we love. We should be honoured to do it. The best you can do is is give every piece your best, I think. Yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, um, several of these uh, writers have gone to The Athletic. Mm. Uh, were, were you approached by them? Yeah, I had a discussion with them. Um, I think for me, I, uh, I think... It was. It would have been a more natural step for me if I was coming from a newspaper background. I think my. I talked earlier about establishing myself in the in the industry, and it is a, it is a bubble, and it is a, a circle in which knowing people is everything. Uh, and I'm not in that circle at the moment. Uh, you know, I, mean, I do go to matches now, so maybe slowly but surely that changes. But I'm not in it at the moment. So I think my next step probably has to be. Either that, or a you know a very mainstream website like a, an ESPN, etc. Um, I think the Athletic is a natural home for writers. You know, I mentioned George Colkin, I mentioned Jack Brook, and people like that who um, have already created a uh, a reputation for themselves that gives them a, a huge amount of kudos in the industry, and deservedly so, with both readers and supporters, but also with their peers. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a very good job for them to take because I think it can give them a freedom to produce their best work every time. I think for me, it was probably a little bit different. Yeah, and well, I mean, you're also uh, you know primarily known as like for your columns, mm. you know, which the Athletic, at least at the moment, don't really do m- much of. Um, yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think one of that 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 is probably one of the dangers of freelance is that you end up being everybody's guy to offer an opinion and can sometimes become a bit of an opinion for hire. And that is something, to be honest, I'd like to move away from. I, I managed to do last season a few deeper pieces and human interest pieces for BBC Sport. And they're great because they can offer a different string to my bow. Uh, I'd like to do more interviews. Uh, but again, I think that's the hardest thing to get as a freelancer because you don't have a relationship with, with an outlet. You don't have an affiliation that you can go to a club and say, I am doing this for so and so. You have to get the interview and then pitch it, and it becomes a little bit messy. Um, but I, I still, I mean, I still think that you know. I hope that people still read the work and enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk, you know, about that um, because it's something that I deal with. I mean, literally, this show is all about you know. I have to book people all the time mm-hmm. and whatnot. And uh, you know, you, I, I read reread your piece on uh, Joe Lolly. Yeah. Um, today on, on the way here actually but um so how, how did a story like that come about because you are freelance um did you just like reach out to the club and and see like hey yeah, can I, get- I, I i reached out to the club initially uh it helps that joe follows me on twitter uh i had spoken to him before he's a he's a an exceptional footballer in terms of talent but also an exceptional footballer in that he's very different to other footballers i've met in that he's not or doesn't want to be incredibly well media trained. He wants to have an opinion of himself. He comes from a background where he went to university and he's got a bit more, I don't know, let's say world experience, although it sounds quite cliched. Um, but he wanted to talk and he's prepared to talk and they're always the best interviews when you're not having to persuade the subject to, to talk. Yeah. Uh, and not just to talk about themselves because that's generally where people struggle the most, but to talk about world events to talk about their place in society to talk about football's place in society and he's brilliant at that Uh, I think there is a new rise of this kind of human interest interview and it's great it's really good to see 
Because I think for a while, everyone suspected that footballers were being so well media manicured that the age of the outspoken footballer might have died. And hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully there is a sense that people are prepared to talk, which is great. Do you feel like, um, you know, because as an American, like, you know, the biggest difference between American sports and British sports, it's not even close, is the amount of media access. Um, do you feel like there's enough access in in the football world right now? Or um, do you think it'll impr- uh, there'll be even more access in the future? It seems like that's kind of what you were yeah, kind of getting I, at. I, certainly, I would like more access. I think we'd all like to be able to do more interviews. Yeah. Um, because there are, peop- there are people with things to say and they aren't really being heard at the moment, or at least they're being heard via a sanitized medium of social media accounts. Uh, and I don't think it's good for footballers, I have to say. I don't think it's healthy for footballers to be subjected to this bubble, part self-engineered and part enforced upon them by agents and clubs where they aren't outspoken. I don't think it's healthy for their for their mental well-being. I think it's important that they connect with supporters and with um, with the general population because otherwise it's quite easy to form ivory towers and that's not healthy to anyone. Uh, I... But then I also am aware that, you know, you get these media sit-downs and actually the danger with those is that players and managers are so well prepared for them that that's when you do get the kind of sanitised answers. Um, It's the exception rather than the rule to get better than that. So yes, I would like media access, but I would like organic media access. I, I I would like clubs to be more open to saying yes rather than delaying you for months and months and eventually you're having to do a round table where everyone gets one question or two questions. I would like it to be a more um, an open dialogue between journalists and writers and clubs and players and managers to make that more of a two-way street, to make it feel like you're not fighting just for morsels. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever get to the American model of open media days, although it should be said that that the FA in England have been a lot better with that in the last couple of years. And I think that's created a healthier environment. So maybe that is the answer. But I I wouldn't be in favour of more access if it's purely going to be manicured and sanitised. What I'd like is, as I say, a more open dialogue between those parties. Yeah. Did it feel different getting the sort of reaction from doing, you know, that Joe Lawley piece Mm. or some of the other, like, interviews and human interest pieces that you've done compared to some of the reaction that you got that you do get from columns yeah I think I think those human interest pieces sell very well on social media and as a freelancer that's scarily that's just about all you have to rely on on feedback there's a lot of self-motivation and self um, energizing to tell yourself that it's still it's all very worthwhile because there's a danger that you tweet a piece out that you're very happy with and if it only gets X number of retweets and likes, you consider that piece as unsuccessful. Now, A, that's a nonsense because only a very small amount is driven through Twitter of traffic. I know that from Football 365. But also, it's about a pride in your work. If you're happy with a piece, then um, then it's successful for you. If you're getting paid for work and you enjoy writing it and you're proud of it, that's the most important thing. And uh, I'm sure we all write pieces that we're happier of than others but I can honestly say that for you know for a long period of time I have never phoned in a piece because I can't be bothered because I think that's probably the beginning of the end yeah have you you know when you've done a lot of these like freelance articles have you asked the you know the 
the platforms uh, for the numbers? Do you like? Are you really interested in that, or like, uh, does it I, matter to you? I suppose the honest answer is, <laughs> which sounds really negative, is that I'm only truly interested if something is going wrong, and I'm. I would hope that they would mention it before things were obviously going wrong. If we needed to make changes. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can find out very easily my, my, the traffic on Football 365 stuff because I know Sarah very well. And, and actually, they have a very, you know, they'd like a bigger audience, I'm sure, but they have a very loyal audience. So the figures on everything are within a ballpark about the same. Um, for things like the eye, getting myself in print was a massive thing anyway. Again, it's a pride thing, not just for me, but, you know, in a sloppy way, my mum will cut out those columns that I now do on in a Friday paper because her son's in loves football all his life and now he's writing about football in a newspaper. That's great. That's a huge pride for me. Um, I think the as you say, the danger with online is that things just get lost very quickly and there's a kind of quantity over quality ethos that if we're not careful we'll be allowed to take over. Did you grow up like pouring over the newspaper, read, like reading everything you could? or I mean, because it seems like the newspaper is like a big thing for you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I suppose it's quite, well, some people would say it's outdated or accuse me of that, but I, I do, yeah. I, we, we used to get uh, the Times and the Guardian as kids when I was a kid, and uh, I used to read Simon Barnes. I remember in the Times used to be brilliant, uh, and I used to read match, yeah, read match reports, I used to, the thing, one of my standout memories from being a kid was getting Match Magazine that used to have a pullout in the middle which listed all the goal scorers and all the get, from all the games in the Football League and probably around Europe as well. And I used to just used to play out the goals in my bedroom with a little sponge ball. So like, it was, that, it was kind of that, like I've always loved it and I've always read ferociously, not just football, but particularly football and sport as I grew older and wanted to make it a career. Because I think that's, People always send, quite often send emails saying, can you give me any advice, et cetera. And the honest answer is, I can't really. There's no magic formula. But reading enables your mind to open. It me means you take on styles of writing, you take on formation and ideas and without even knowing it. So next time you sit down and you think, oh, what am I going to write about this week? Suddenly you've got three ideas without even knowing it. Now, if you didn't read anything, those ideas would come a lot harder to you and there would be worse pieces. Yeah, I mean, I, I always, I was the one that got the paper from my house. Like they would put it on the lawn, and I would wake up at like you know six forty-five, run out, get it, get the paper, bring it in, discard the rest of the sections <laughs> of like the New York Times to you know everyone else in the house, and I'll just give me the sports while I eat my cereal. Yeah. Uh, so I can I can relate to that. Um, uh, but you you talk about ideas, um, you know you. We, we spoke uh, before I started recording and, you know, I mentioned that you write five articles pretty much a, a week. You know, how do those ideas come up? It, surely it can't just be reading. I mean, uh, I think, I mean, I have the, the, the nuts and bolts of it is that I have a, a little notebook that I carry with me or have at home that if I have an idea, I will write it on a new half page. And then when it comes to choosing ideas, I'll probably have five or six down there that I can make little spider diagrams out of. And the one that jumps out at me is, this spider diagram's coming along very well. Uh, I think this can be a piece. 
then that is generally the one I will write. I, you know, I don't, one thing I don't do is I don't think, well, this piece is for so-and-so out there. This is higher profile, so I'll do save my best piece for this. It doesn't really work like that to me. I think as long as you get the idea right, the piece will be right for you. Uh, and those ideas come via speaking to people, mates, chatting on WhatsApp, reading, watching football, reading the magazines, on Twitter, will come like that. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily that someone says, it's not as simple, and <laughs> I would obviously stress this, but it's not as simple as so-and-so writes a piece and you go, well, that's a good idea for a piece. I want to have that as an idea. It's not that. It's if you read a piece and it might just mention a little thing and it sets off something in your mind and you think, actually, it could be a piece. There's a strand there because two weeks ago I heard him say in his press conference that he was thinking about this and that hasn't happened and that's how it happens. And obviously also thinking about ideas that are just not, not just related to football. So, for example, I'm going to write a piece this afternoon which is a semi-preview to... Liverpool Arsenal this coming weekend for Optus Sport and I heard Emery say something about Liverpool are probably the worst team that Arsenal could play. There's a really interesting strand in there. You could take that on face value but there's also a really interesting strand in there about a football manager being incredibly honest when actually half the job normally is about bluffing and def deflecting attention and keeping hard questions out of the dressing room. To be very honest is different, but is that refreshing? Is it overly honest? Things like that, they all were around your mind. And if I don't write them down, then it's not that I'll forget them, but I won't remember it all. So as soon as I get it down, one strand leads to another strand leads to another strand. And suddenly in an 800 word piece, you've got enough there to go at. I mean, I, I've always been the case. I've always been a waffler. I've always written 1,200 words for an 800 word piece and then had to cut it and break it down because I think that's the way you get rid of waffle by having to get rid of 25% of a piece and I thought yeah that's the way I find it easiest and it's spider diagrams so you I mean you're talking about like essentially like you know when you brainstorm and you yeah. just like you know drawing lines from okay this becomes this becomes that be yeah. yeah and if you have if you have five or six, I mean no golden rule but if you have five or six initial lines coming out of the circle, then that's probably five or six ideas or five or six paragraphs. And within that, if you write it properly and write it well and write it eloquently, then there should be enough for a good piece. There's so much, I cannot fathom how people can't have ideas sometimes because there's so much going on. Football is so, such a sprint through the season now that there is so much going on and so much changing every week. I think you have to be very careful not to come up with sweeping conclusions one week because everything changes very quickly now. But that should just persuade you to go deeper into the analysis and to be a little bit more insightful. And yeah, it excites me. It excites me thinking about it. It excites me doing it. And it excites me writing about them. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to get back to your journey a little bit uh, because it is really interesting because um, you were a deputy editor at Football 365. And, you know, most people that are freelance when they get the chance to go non-freelance, they jump at it. You know, mm. they want that stable, you know, paid gig. Um, so why did you do the opposite and go from stable, uh, you know, paid gig to doing this freelance? Yeah, I, I was deputy editor at 365, which firstly, that effectively means second in command. But as I say, there's never been more than three people working there full time. So 
it, it's a it's a fluffy title, deputy editor, but actually it just meant I was working below Sarah and I'd been there longer than the other person that was there. Um, and part of the job entailed site management, you know, social media stuff, um, bits, various bits of admin that I've always considered myself. I think there are three three different titles in the industry. One is journalist, which is someone that gets the news. One is writer, which is someone that offers, takes an insight on the news. And another is an editor who offers um, a more overarching role within the other two. And I always saw myself as more of a writer than a journalist and more of a writer than an editor. And I think going freelancers allowed me to um, do more, concentrate basically on doing writing and some broadcast stuff which is is new and is nice to do but I mean the other thing that should be said is that I was working at 365 the offices in Leeds and I live near Loughborough not between Nottingham and Loughborough so I was going up one day a week staying over in a hotel at my own cost going into the office the next day coming home working the rest of the time at home so I kind of had a freelance schedule in terms of my existence anyway now the difference is is I work at home and the night I spend away is because I'm going to a Champions League game somewhere so the actual workload in terms of where I am is pretty similar so it wasn't a huge jump from it wasn't like I was doing nine to five work into this and so do do you like you know doing freelance now or would you prefer at some point to go you know maybe have like a stable gig at like an ESPN like you mentioned or well well, yeah I mean I'm you know I can use a show as a (laughs) as a call to arms no I yeah I would I mean I I would obviously I'd look at the obvious answer and the boring one is that I'd consider any any offer that came and reject the bad ones and seriously consider the good ones I'm not wedded to freelance I think it was a more it's an easy I I talked before about the the conveyor belt I think it's a more natural step to go from a freelancer doing bits for newspapers and broadcasters uh, into one of those jobs than it is to go from 365 full time to one of those jobs that was one reason for making the change Um, uh, I'm very bad at switching off I'm very bad at not working uh, and freelance life is is awful for that because I have an office at home and uh, I mean we literally it used to be we we have a tiny little well a very a small house but it's over three floors and we literally had to move the office from the first floor to the second floor because now I have to physically go upstairs to work whereas before I would just wander past the room go in and suddenly an hour's gone by and I'm I'm working when I shouldn't be working. So I find it hard to switch off and freelance life is bad for that. But I think the best writers and journalists probably do the same, even if they're in full-time work. Um, you, the reality of social media is that you even accidentally have your ear to the ground on things and you can't really switch off from it. Partly because you love football as a fan as well as a writer. So you, it's very hard to uh, disengage between the two, I think. Are you one of those writers that like has to do it at like one of my friends who's uh, a writer, he does all of his work late at night at like 11, 11, 12 and, you know, goes to like three in the morning. And No, I, I'm not. I'm not like that. I have to say I am more and more. And it would surprise many people that I've known in my past becoming a morning person in that I am prepared to wake up and do the bulk of my work in the morning. 
Um, it kind of depends on the schedule. I mean, on a Monday, on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I'm working 13, 14 hour days um, on each of them. And I haven't got a choice. That's the work that has to get done. And you then times that by the three and that's close to a 40 hour week on those three days. So you have to try and take some time out in the rest of the week. But uh, one of the perils of freelance life in a non handsomely paid industry is that it's very hard to say no to things if people ask you and you've you've physically got the capability the time to do it it's very hard to say no because you live in constant fear or I live in constant fear that they just won't ask again they'll find someone who can and if they do it all right they'll ask them the first next time so that is a a horrible thing to balance Um, and I think I probably do work too hard well I feel like I'm fine with it but my partner might say that you work too hard and my friends might say you work too hard, but I think it's it's very hard to look at that from the outside because it is so competitive that you do feel like the moment you stand still, you're moving backwards a bit. At at this point though, do you feel like, I mean, most of the time you're getting things pitched to you and not you pitching it to other people or? The one thing I wanted and thankfully have been able to do um, because I am needy, I wanted to be able to have a variety of regular things. So I can say with some certainty that this season, all being well, as long as four around me, but Mondays I will generally do the Totally Show. I'll have winners and losers. Uh, Optus Sport will be Tuesday. I will write um, winners and losers or a piece for 365. Champions League winners and losers or a piece for 365 on a Wednesday. Uh, I will do my eye column on a Thursday. I'll be at a match on a Saturday and Sunday. I'll do my Irish examiner on a Sunday afternoon. They're all regular things, and that's quite a lot of work. So I know that I have set points in the week where I can fill in other things. So it might be that someone asks you to do a bit of filming, or it might be that I have an idea that I can pitch to BBC Sport or an extra piece to the eye, or they might say there's an interview come up, do you want to do it? So I have some scope to do those, but I really wanted some regular things because otherwise I feel like... Uh, yeah, I might deal quite badly with that. And one of the dangers of, of not having regular stuff is that I would just end up working all the time because I'd be constantly chasing my tail and worried about not getting paid. And, um, you know, it's not a case of uh, I need, to, we can't put food on the table this month, but you do want to try and save up some money and you do want to save up for the tax bill that's coming the next January or whatever. So it is hard. It isn't a, it isn't a glamorous lifestyle by any means, obviously. Yeah, uh, you know, I want to kind of finish by talking about um, the state of media um, and football media. Mm -hmm. You were kind of one of the first writers to kind of be beating the drum of the Raheem Sterling case and how uh, the tabloids were treating him. I mean, I saw a tweet of yours all the way back in 2016 Mm -hmm. um, talking about this. You know, it's been, I guess, like nine months, I guess, since, uh, you know, he brought attention to it um, on his social media accounts. You know, nine months on, how do you feel like, do you think the media is a little different um, because of how he talked about it or? Yeah, I, I do think it caused a change. I, I think it, it, when we talk about football media, it's difficult because those, the, the vast majority of those stories were front page stories, um, which were not written by football journalists. They were, uh, certainly the sun stuff and the gun tattoo stuff and so on and so forth some of it was um was done by football journalists but it was it was done by again the vast majority by tabloid websites where there is a very difficult ethos of needing to drive traffic and 
Raheem Sterling, I think, and a couple of others became uh, kind of collateral damage in that, an unacceptable collateral damage in that. And I think that they have taken a step back to say enough is enough. And it shouldn't have taken Raheem Sterling speaking up. I'm very proud of him, which sounds a very odd thing to say about someone who I've never met, but I'm very proud of him that he did that because it would have been a lot easier to stay quiet and let other people fight that battle. But in doing so, I think he made a a genuine difference. I don't think we will see those kind of stories again, partly because of him speaking out, partly because I think there's a a greater respect for footballers in terms of their mental health and how we treat them as either robots or circus animals to perform for us. Whereas actually it's a lot harder for them than that. And I think that has caused a change as well. Um, Whether or not they've changed because they felt pressured to change or because they wanted to, I hope it's the latter. I hope there was a recognition that, hang on, we got this wrong. People got this wrong. Let's let's make a marked change. And yeah, I think I I think and hope that's happened. Um, the other thing that Raheem Sterling spoke out about or suffered was was actual racist abuse. And I think the other thing that the media needed to do and probably did is understand the connection between their stories, which weren't explicitly racist, but the way that they could be interpreted and warped by those in the public who uh, had an axe to grind on those issues. Uh, and I, again, I hope that improvements have been made there. Yeah, well, I want to, you know, I think the Raheem Sterling case uh, does bring up some um, important things that are going on right now, which is kind of the tribalism in football. And, you know, one of the things that that I try to do in this podcast is, you know, talk about these bigger issues and, um, you know, kind of delve into the, you know, the mindset of a player or, you know, what, what, what are you thinking when, you know, someone says this or, or that, um, what what are your feelings on kind of how tribal football is becoming and how that is being reflected in the media and people not really empathizing as much with players because mm. they're getting paid so much? I mean, yeah, I hope that part of it is merely social media mistakenly reflecting the general norm. I hope that social media, Twitter in particular, is providing a a slightly warped view of reasoned opinion um, because of its very nature as a platform. Uh, but there's no doubt that tribalism has increased amongst football supporters. And the reality is, to my mind, is that football caused that itself by telling everyone it mattered so much, by selling it as this incredibly important product, which is inevitable when a, what was a sport become suffers a or experiences a rampant commercialization and a, a vast influx of money, it becomes more important. And as long as you tell people it becomes more important, as long as you charge them more money for it, it does become more important inevitably. And the reality of that and the aftershock of that is that people then take it more seriously and get angry when things don't go their way. We live in an incredibly uh, consumerist society where people want everything delivered same day delivery and they want it they get angry if there's a fault and they get angry if the delivery slot gets missed and they get angry if they don't feel they've got value for money and football is just a part of that now because that's what it's embraced itself as. Uh, I, I, In terms of media, I think it's the tendency, the only way it's reflected in the media, I think, in a negative sense, is this need to for extreme opinion and this rise of the kind of rent-a-gob um, 
big opinions haver. And I, I said before, that's one thing I desperately want to stay away from being a professional opinions haver because I don't think that's healthy. And the problem with having big opinions is that they can quite quickly have to change next week as things change. I think to an extent we're a little bit guilty of that sens sensationalist angle with headlines and pieces. But the, as I say, the cream will always rise to the top. There's still plenty of enough analysis and reason debate out there if you want to find it. And thankfully, I hope that readers do want to find it. So are you, you know, generally encouraged or discouraged by where uh, the media is going? Uh, I'm on a personal level. I'm I'm hopeful. I don't think there's any reason to be anything else because I think the moment you lose a bit of belief, especially in freelance life, uh, things can unravel and you can get dispirited quite quickly. So I think it'd be silly to do anything other than look on the bright side. I am a, a natural worrier. I am a natural um, neurotic about things. I overthink things, and none of those lend well to freelance life. But I am at least confident that I can continue to write my best work, which is all you can really ask. Uh, in a media sense, it will be very interesting. The Athletic is the biggest change in football writing in this country since the beginning of the internet. And the industry got the beginning of the internet completely wrong. It didn't realise its power. It didn't realise it should charge for online product as well as print product. And in doing so, it created a model that had to rely on advertisers that has come close to signing its own death warrant. The hope is that there is still enough people out there to pay for content that therefore makes that a success and others can follow that model and create a product that... It, there is no reason why people shouldn't pay for football writing. It is a an expensive job and you have to pay for travel to get to games. You have to you know, invest a hell of a lot of time in it. There's no reason why people shouldn't pay for that, but it requires a complete change of mindset of the general public to pay for it, and that will be hard. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we started talking about like how we were both uh, big fans of reading the newspaper every morning. I mean, it you know you have to pay for that as well. So, I mean, I don't see why you shouldn't you know pay for you know quality football content. Um, you know, like the Athletic. I mean, at the moment, it's only like thirty pounds for the year, which mm -hmm. is you know yeah. Quite I mean, small. You, you look at it and you think, well, it's, let's say you're on that two pound forty nine a month deal. That is. And, it, and it's the way everyone's sold, working there sold it as, but that is less than a coffee you buy. Yeah. Now, the, the problem comes in that people have always paid for coffee and they've always paid a premium for coffee that they have outside of the house than the ones they make at home. So people already know, they already see the intrinsic value in buying that coffee. The problem with things being available for free and being available free across the board for so long is that people are used not to paying for that and therefore they don't want to feel oh, actually, we got away with this for too long. We got away with having this for free for too long. Now we have to pay. They need to be sold an ostensibly better product than the one they're getting for free. And that's very hard to do because there are some damn good writers and editors working for outlets that give away their content online for free. Do you think that they will, you know, because people are going to pay and they want a you know premium product, do you see the level of sports writing uh, improving at these other newspapers? I think it can it can improve if they're given more time um, to write pieces and given more freedom to do what they want. Uh, the reality, though, is is that the the customer is always right, and the reader will will and should dictate what uh, happens on that site. It's very much in its embryonic stages at the moment, and it can have that freedom, and it will do different things and see what works, and it will you know, suck it and see on various options. But the reader will very quickly define what they want to read. Now, they've, they have also got the benefit of 
seeing what the American market wanted and being able to use that as evidence. But yeah, the reader will always decide. But if they can if they can make it work, it is good for the industry as a whole. Yeah. Well, we've we've talked a lot about kind of your obsession with football. But you know, before we go. Um, What's something you do when you're not, you know, uh, dissecting and consuming football? I am a lazy person, generally. I like <laughs> to lie around and read and watch other sport. I like watching, I, I love watching cricket. And I, in fact, I love cricket, not as much as football, but not far off. But I like that I don't write about cricket deliberately because it means I can have something as a switch off. I'm not constantly thinking about it when I'm watching it. Um, but no, other than that, I, I, you know, I, I have a partner that I live with, so we spend time together, we listen to podcasts, we watch stuff. Um, that's not the problem. The problem is the mind switching off while I'm doing all of those other things. Yeah. What, what podcasts do you listen to out of curiosity? Uh, I listen to, uh, well, my partner listens to a lot of murder podcasts, like true crime podcasts. <laughs> but things like, I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts, so All Killer No Filler, Richard Herring's Leicester Square, Atletico Mint, so that's vaguely football. Um, John Robbins and Lois James on XFM. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of comedy podcasts. That's I, I love going to comedy gigs. That's where I find a good escape. I find that the way it captures your attention means that you can't be thinking about something else. You have to be concentrating, fully concentrating. So that's probably what I'd say is my one escape. Is there a good stand-up in uh, Nottingham or uh, Nottingham? It's my one uh, jealousy of, of not living in London. There aren't many, but um, we probably get in six months what you could see in a fortnight in London, which is frustrating, but it makes you more grateful when they do come. Yeah, uh, I'll let you go, and this is a question I ask uh, pretty much all my guests, um, which is, if you were the head of FIFA, how would you change football? I think there has to be um, definitive answers on where the game's going in terms of um, the influence of the biggest clubs about the future of the game. Um, whether that's conversations at FIFA level or UEFA level or both, whether it's with the clubs to try and get some sort of friendly arrangement. But it feels at the moment like different parties are pulling in different ways. And the reality is that the parties with the most money and the most influence will win that argument. And the the parties with the most money are the clubs now. Yeah. and to an extent the broadcasters, but the clubs, they're the most powerful. And if they win the race, I don't think football will be as pleasant as it is now. You're talking about like a Super League. Yeah, I'm talking about Super League. I'm talking about um, B teams of big clubs in the Football League. I'm, I'm, I'm not against change. I'm not a Luddite, but I am against um, change being purely enacted at the will and behest of the biggest clubs and the most powerful clubs and the loss of there's a difference between being a Luddite and cherishing the importance of tradition in the English game. And I think if we lose our traditions, then um, we risk losing most things. Well, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pl thank pleasure. You. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you would like to hear more episodes or see show notes of this episode, please check out my website, www.thisfootballlife.com. And please, if you enjoy the show, share it with a friend, a family member, or a colleague. Hell, tell a stranger if you feel so inclined. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy your day.